Welcome to the Writer's Block, episode 14, Collaboration Stories, brought to you by Semi-Sweet Chocolates, the one and only candy made specifically for long-haul truckers. I am Rylan Grant, screenwriter, Ringo Award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant, Banjax, and The Jump, the other voice in the dark, the man in the box to the right is... David Avalone, rarely to the right of anything, uh comic book and <laughs> film guy and uh snappy dresser that was a it's a good little thing we are actually coming to you uh you will see this uh a while longer but we're coming to you on coup day so uh if you hear uh a little uh political uh this or that um it's it's in the air it's in the water um i guess i will leave it at that um if you missed our our last episode uh our writer artist relationship discussion with elvira artist dave acosta and aberrant artist uh john borhuska i strongly suggest you back it on up and check that out but we have a great show for you today as always avalani go ahead and uh, bring the guests on let us bring in steve and billy howdy steve, howdy billy billy and steve steve hello tell Ryland. Us about hello david thank you for hello, having Dylan. us on our pleasure. Uh, well, my name is uh, Steve Peros. I am a, uh, a screenwriter, TV writer, uh, playwright, and now uh, comic book and graphic novel writer. I'm most known for writing a uh, Lionsgate film directed by Peter Bogdanovich called The Cat's Meow about a, a notorious, infamous, possible murder on board William Randolph Hearst in 1924 with... Uh, uh, Kirsten Dunst, Eddie Izzard, and, uh, and, uh, and ten, uh, ten out of ten better than Mank, by the way. Just as a <laughs> quick, quick <laughs> review, <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, yeah, the films actually come back into, uh, and I was, I was expecting it to, but I waited to see. And um, you know, a couple of different critics have uh, written it, uh, ventured to talked about it. Um, uh, a couple of critics have, have written very lovely reappraisals revisiting it as uh, in, in a positive comparison to to Mank. Um, uh, so I've worked in TV and uh, I've worked on, I've, I've sold uh, to networks uh, half, uh, half hours, one hours. Um, I have some uh, plays published by what's formerly known as Samuel French, now known as uh, Concord Theatricals. Really? And, uh, yeah, yeah, nice. they, uh, they closed the bookstore. I think they may still technically keep the Samuel French name but they're all under the umbrella now of something called Concord Theatricals. I think, I think they don't want to throw out the books that they printed. Uh, so it's going to stay Samuel French until they run out of inventory. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, now I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very happy to be here because back in 2017, I segued into working on a graphic novel called uh, Stoker and Wells, Order of the Golden Dawn, about a fictitious meeting between um, a 20-something H.G. Wells and a 40-something Bram Stoker and how it led to the inspiration for both bands' first great work. Billy Tucci and I, who is is uh, is hanging out over there, uh, he and I have known each other since seventh grade. I said, well, I don't know anything about comic books or graphic novels. Why don't I talk to the fellow who's been a huge success at it to guide me on my way, and he has. And I think that's a perfect the teeing up of uh, Billy Tucci to introduce himself. Yes. Hello, Ryan, teen sensation Billy Tucci. And uh, I am representing Steve. I'm wearing my Islanders hat, I'm wearing a hat nice. today to represent where Steve and I are from on Long Island, where we met the first day of school at Peter J. Brennan Junior High. <laughs> and we were both wow. monster kids and uh, we just became pals. And um, then Steve, after graduation, went off to NYU. 
I went off to the Fashion Institute of Technology that were probably 20 blocks away, and we saw each other once over four years on the train. Uh-huh. <laughs> on the train, and he was name-dropping how he had just hung out with Treat Williams. I did. <laughs> nice. I did, and that's not the, the only of thing. The city. I mean, you know, I, yeah. so, but uh, I got I got some interesting news today to 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 to, to say today too. But uh, yeah, my name is Billy Tucci. Um, originally a self publisher uh, of uh, uh, Crusade Comics. I am the 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 president the pre- president publisher of Crusade Comics. Uh, got into uh, comics in 1994 after I tried to get work at Marvel in DC and was re- rejected. Uh, with great um, prejudice, if you will, and uh, and all the other smaller publishers, and I said, you know, the heck with this. I I have this little story, this little modern day samurai story, and I want to, you know, I want to. I'll make the comic myself. Why not? I had no idea what I was doing, but I'm like, I'm going to self publish a comic book. And um, well, you know what? Uh, I don't know what 130 issues later, you know, three million books we've sold over the past 25 years, 26 years. And uh, I was, uh, as a matter of, you know, Steve is one of my best friends. And and uh, we came together to this fine fellowship of bringing She back for the first time in 15 years. Um, with, uh, with uh, I had called him because I was bringing back She Return of the Warrior, our graphic novel, last year's graphic novel that, that, that came out 2020. And uh, I called Steve just because I have a great respect uh, for his talent and his, uh, his, his ability and just to, to, to bang some ideas off of Steve. And uh, well, one thing led to another, and we can get into that story with, in greater detail. I don't know if you want, but Steve was asking me questions, challenged me with a lot of questions because I was bringing she back for the first time in 15 years, but I wanted the character Anna Ishikawa to progress with time. So I wanted Anna to be 15 years older or and 20 years older from when she first, uh, first debuted and, you know, there's a lot, lot, lot of things that, you know, a lot of, lot of gaps, a lot of answers that have to be told. You want to bring back a comic that's 48 pages for the first time in 15 years and you're progressing over that amount of time. You want something for, for not only the readers that know she, but also the readers that new readers, because you always want new readers. So right. Steve and I had a great conversation. We might have been drinking scotch, smoking cigars over Zoom. And uh, he just hit me with so many things that I was writing him down and he was writing notes down for me. And we hung up, you know, and we said, you know, said goodnight. And then I probably called him five minutes later and said, do you want to write this with me? <laughs> that's great. And, and, that's, and, and that's ideal. There's, a, there's a, a thing I read in an interview a million years ago that I always remember and I always sort of quote when it comes up. And this is a fundamental idea about collaboration in some ways. Someone was talking to Michael Stipe once about the formation of the band R.E.M. And do you have any advice for people doing bands? And he said, you know, we're all friends. And if you want to start a band, you're better off teaching your best friend how to play bass than putting an ad in a newspaper for a bass player. (laughs) Because the hottest shit bass player you ever find is not going to give a shit about you, is not necessarily going to be someone you want to hang out with in a van at four in the morning, driving from gig to gig. And don't do that to yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, I bet your best friend can become an acceptable enough bass player to be in your band and you'll get some shit done that way. And I, I can't say that every collaboration I've ever done has been with some childhood friend, but I've been lucky, you know, when Dynamite threw David Costa at me for a one shot, we got along 
right away. And when they asked me to do another comic, I said, how about David Costa again? And we're now on probably our, I don't know, 45th issue of comic books together. Like I, I don't want to, don't want to sit here and do the math, but uh, there's a lot to be said for already having a friendship, already having a relationship with one another, already having respect for each other's ideas and well, for and each other's expertise. Yeah, and and you describe something there, Billy, that I think is really, I mean, it's, you have, you only have a handful of them, I think, over the course of a career, like a really kind of magical moment. Sure. And and maybe I'm downplaying that. I mean, maybe there are five earth-shattering moments in your career, and then there are like a, a handful more of, of magical moments. But, um, you know, I mean, uh, uh, I, you know, uh, Steve and, and, and David can certainly attest to this. I mean, it's like uh, Hollywood meetings, you know, um, you, uh, you write a script, the script goes out and then you do afterwards, you do what's called the water bottle tour. Um, you do, I don't know, you know, a dozen, 20, 50, uh, hundred meetings afterwards, depending on, you know, how, how well the script is received. Um, and they call it the water bowl tour because you go in, they give you a bottle of water and you kind of check in, you check out, you walk out with your bottle of water. Um, and you end and, up with 20 bottles of water in your car by the end of the day, yeah. which is my favorite part. Yeah. <laughs> and it is, it is for the most part, this kind of colossal waste of time. Right. And there's a way in which it isn't because you're, you're getting FaceTime with these people. They're, they're learning your story. They're, um, they're getting, a you know, they are kind of investing themselves in you to a certain degree because they're giving up an hour of your day. But for the most part, nothing comes of any of these meetings, right? But every once in a while, you know, it is the, it's the 23rd meeting on the water bottle tour. And you walk into an office on the Sony lot and you expect it to be another jack off, right? Um, but something happens. You sit down and you guys hit it off talking about the fucking Mets or something like that, right? Talking about, uh, the last dragon talking about uh, some obscure issue of Iron Man from the seventies. Right. Um, and this ho-hum meeting that was supposed to be 45 minutes long turns into this two hour like marathon where you kind of don't want it to end. Right. It's like uh it's like the best first date you've ever had in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, the other way to look at this is Avalone, you and I had one of these. Because, yeah. because, you know, I, I mean, Avalone and I are very active in this kind of L.A. comic scene. And, and, uh, and, and I think that he and I are both um, uh, we're both of the opinion that when you see somebody who's kind of, you know, you see somebody who is kind of working as hard as you, you want to meet that person, you know. Um, and, 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 you know, the, the thing to do, you set up a coffee and you, you go and you sit down. And Evelyn um, and I are both doing this. And we both kind of saw each other working and, and eventually that just happened. And, and most of those coffees, they're fine, you know, and you meet somebody and they're perfectly nice. And sometimes it's just a phone call or whatever. Um, but, but this tends to happen, uh, uh, you know, every so often in comics. I mean, Avalone and I sat down and I think we thought we were going to have a 45 minute coffee. And three hours later. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a while. It was, it, it was, we're looking down at our watches. I had to and go plug like, a meter at least once. Yeah. And it's, it's just like, holy shit, you know, and, uh, and, and, you know, and, uh, you know, a few years later, we're here doing this fucking show together. And, uh, and uh, we are, you know, in more ways than one collaborators and kind of partners on this road. And so I love hearing those stories, you know, um, uh, and, and, you know, being able to recognize that and then kind of turn it into something amazing like you guys did, I think is, uh, is very yeah, I, want, I just want to uh, follow up on that about the collaboration, but before that, I want to talk about the, the, uh, the water bottle tour, you know, they're, you know, they, they're called general meetings. You write, you write a script and then your agent 
manager gets people to read it. They may not buy that script, but they want to have a general meeting with you. And I know, you know, writers tend to say, oh, those readings are such a waste of time. And then I, 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 I changed my attitude when I went in. I was like, this is, I've just walked into a, a, a gold mine, and I'm not going to leave here unless I walk out with some gold. This, and so rather than going in, which is what I've always, had always done in the past and most writers don't do, they go in there, well, they've read my script. We're going to get to know each other, and I wonder what they're going to offer me. I wonder what they're going to give me. I decided I'm going to try to take. So I, I always go into generals now saying, so what are you guys working on? What do you need a rewrite of? Is there some book that's been lying around that you guys have? And I actually got a gig, actually a script that did not sell, that I got generals off of. I realized had I not asked the, asked the questions and made the made the executive not think of it as just a getting to know you meeting, made it actually, all right, well, let me get up and go to a shelf and hand me something. I wouldn't have gotten a gig, and it wound up being a, a TV sale, a one-hour drama to, to to MTV, and and it was off of a script totally unrelated in in mm -hmm. tone or genre to what they had read from me. But they knew that I'd done Cats Meow, which was a historical piece, and this was going to be a, a, a 1950s set. Uh, Cats Meow was 1920s, so I always try to tell people. Still, most of them turn into nonsense. Uh, okay, I got to know an executive, and now maybe now I'm a little. If something in the future, maybe I will actually take their card. But it is work. Like you think the work is writing the script. I got recognition. Now there's no more work I need to do. Now mm -hmm. you really have to do the freaking work. Absolutely. You know, and like make these relationships mean something so that I don't walk out grumbling. I still grumble, but <laughs> you want to kind of you you realize, wow, I got to be more proactive in these generals because otherwise it's right. It's just a whole bunch of freaking water bottles that get rancid in the back seat yeah. of your car. But I want to talk about Billy and, and collaboration because I've done it both ways. And I think David, you were kind of hinting at that. Sometimes you work with friends, you know, the old, the, the old adage is, you know, don't work with friends because then you won't, they won't be your friends anymore. And, and I've had not quite that experience, but certainly the experience where I worked with a friend, uh, uh, we got uh, sirens in Hollywood, um, nice. where I worked with a friend and I realized, wow, I really shouldn't work with that friend anymore. It was based, best that we say friends, not, not workers, uh, but with Billy, it was just amazing. I mean, this is a character. I said, oh my God, I'm stepping into Billy's character. He's had this character since the mid nineties, since I went to Comic-Con and I literally could not get to Billy uh, because of the the, the, the massive uh, wall, thick wall of people behind his table. And, um, and he was out selling uh, Superman and Batman. It was an incredible ride he was on. And I'm like, oh boy, it's gonna be really particular working for Billy and uh, because he's got to be really precise about this character. And on top of that, as a friend, I also know Billy, as he will admit, to be a bit ADHD. And I thought, that was, was that going to be what part of his work process? And I was like, oh, my God. Billy's, like, on freaking top of everything. He knows where he is. His organization is, is – as a friend, I wouldn't have thought he was nearly as, as organized with, with correspondence and details and files and, and stuff about uh, and process and running through this process, even though his wife is a huge part of the Crusade Empire and the organization of uh, Debbie, uh, uh, of the, but it was great to work with him on a business level. And he was open to, to my thoughts. He'd only come back at me if he thought there was a real issue. Um, but, but he gave me a lot of uh, leeway. And, and the, the first one, Return of the Warrior, that we co-wrote, when we moved on to the one that we were just finishing up now, Haikyo, um, Billy said, why don't you just write this? You know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk through the general structure of the story at the beginning with a preliminary story as any good producer creator would. 
So he didn't like not know what I was going to be delivering. Uh, but then I did the, I broke it down into, into a basically treatment form of, of pages or groups of pages, what sequence would happen here for it, for him to give me notes and feedback on. And then it's been a constant process as Billy draws, he will, you know, he'll rethink the panels or, or a rare occasion, maybe turn a, pa a, pa a page into two pages. Um, and he's like, so we're going to go longer. And I'm like, really? He goes, you're the only writer I know who doesn't want more pages. I know. He is. <laughs> I'm like, because we were, we were supposed to be 50, uh, 48 pages as right. Return of the Warrior was. And now we're 56 because we want there's this big, big ending. Right. And he's like, well, I think I can do it in, in, in 52 pages. I'm like, no, you have more pages. <laughs> Go. Right, that, I have the screenwriter head on, which is economy. Which is and and I want it and, and what it's really what's really great even though the Return of the Warriors is my second graphic novel, you know I was really thrilled because I knew the fans, uh, you know I was very very worried about the fans and and I love that they're saying what's really great is it, it's forty eight pages but it just keeps it's so much story that moves, uh, it, it, you know moves like watching a movie and and all this kind of stuff which I, which they didn't just they have no problem with so I'm happy that that's how they're identifying it's not it's not a, it's not a negative it's a positive so. So we're really, you know, so it, so I'm always like, ah, I, I really, we could do it in three, not four, you know, and it's like. Well, the, the hey, real hey, reason why it's hey, 56 hey. pages is because Steve gave me 12 panel pages every page. Yeah, I did yeah, not. Right. That's not true. <laughs> now, is this, the, this is, this is still self-published stuff and you're doing a Kickstarter and all that? Yep. Yep. We have a Kickstarter a lot. We have our, our Indiegogo campaign is in demand and mm -hmm. we, we have a strategy at Crusade comics is we call it no fan left behind and what i've learned through crowdfunding and you know we have our our youtube channel called the pop xp which start off as crowdfunding comics uh but now we've expanded you know uh but we've i've learned that there are fans and customers that they just shop on kickstarter and there are those that just shop on indiegogo mm -hmm. and i get it a lot of people don't want to oh i gotta put in my credit card again on this i gotta learn this whole oh I'm happy on Kickstarter. I'll buy books on Kickstarter or vice versa. Um, so, but there are a lot, but, and it kind of, it, it's, it, it, I've always found it strange when you have people and now there are some really big guys that can ju just do Brian Polito, for instance, all Brian has to do is Kickstarter. Cause everyone knows he's going to be there. You have Ethan Van Skyver on Indiegogo. Everyone knows Ethan's going to be there. So he just has that. I don't have that luxury uh, or we don't have that luxury. Steven and I, I feel so I'm like, well, We've created the no, you know, hashtag no fan left behind campaign strategy. So we'll do it on both campaigns, both platforms simultaneously. And you make them different. You have an exclusive edition on Kickstarter, an exclusive edition for the Indiegogo fans if they just want to buy that. Right. And it's a lot of fun. And, and we just launched uh, on Monday, uh, uh, the, the, the 4th of January, for she, Haikyo, the sequel to Return of the Warrior, as, the Kickstarter, as a Kickstarter exclusive. And it's doing fantastic right now. Great. I think we're already over twelve thousand dollars, and in it's not even forty-eight hours. And that's mm -hmm. that's after almost one hundred thirty grand over on Indiegogo. Yeah, after Indiegogo generated that, but but that just shows that there are fans that that prefer one platform over another. There definitely there definitely are. I mean, yeah. that said, I, I someone came up with this statistic of this year, and I think it's true that you know, the three biggest publishers in comics are DC, Marvel, and Kickstarter. Kickstarter yeah. is the third largest publisher. That is if you ignore, as Marvel and DC like to do, Scholastic Books, who right. outsell right. all of us by a trillion yeah, copies. Yeah. 
every year. As long as you pretend that Scholastic Books doesn't make comic books, which they very much. But then do. when it, but but then they'll use that to help their narrative, saying, "Oh, comics has had the best year ever," and it's like, wait yeah. a minute. Yeah, but you're not counting. You're, you're not, not counting, you're counting young adult novels from from Scholastic, and you know uh, what is it, Dog uh, Dog Boy or something that sold yeah. forty million copies. That's where you're getting your numbers from. Yeah, the the, the big two are suffering. I feel. And uh, and I and and there are various reasons for that. COVID, obviously, with the stores, but I also think they're delivering. Um, a, a, you know, a lot of their books are delivering um, subpar. Um, well, it, uh, you know, uh, it's a, and it's that's a, why it's a, companies like Dynamite's rising. Look, yeah. at images doing great. Yeah. Boom, you know. I mean, yeah. it's, and, and it's a lot a, of a smaller. You know, guys. it's a longer discussion, but I think that you know the problem with the big two. One of the problems with the big two is just it's a moribund, self-contained character universe that never seems to grow. I mean, I always remember that it was 1984 or five when Dark Knight Returns came out as a graphic novel, as a collection. And Alan Moore wrote the foreword and he said the reason comic books don't resonate is all legends need to begin, middle, and end. Hmm. And if it's monthly, monthly, monthly for years, that never happens. I was going to address that earlier when you talked about your main character aging. Yeah, uh, My father did that. He wrote 36 private eye novels about Ed Noon. And in 1953, Ed Noon is a 20-something World War II veteran who loves the New York Giants. Hmm. And he kept writing those things until 1985, and Ed Noon's 68 years old, and he's going through old age and depression. And in the last novel, maybe his mind goes from being the last novel, the, the second to last novel, High Noon at Midnight. The plot of that is literally either Ed Noon fails to stop an alien invasion, or he is simply having a dementia, you know, has or simply has developed dementia and belongs in a mental hospital. And because the books are first person, the greatest thing about that is. That is entirely your call as a reader as to right. what happened, what actually happened to Ed Noon. That's but all great. that to say, he would always, when they tried to update it, he would always say, so am I going to just, keep, he's a World War II veteran now, but when I'm writing the books in the 70s, he's a Korean War veteran, and in the yeah. 80s, he should be a Vietnam veteran. Yeah. And it's like, you know, James Bond is the world's only 35-year-old World War II veteran. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> eternally. Nice. Yeah. Like worked for the Royal Navy in World War II, and yet somehow looks amazing. Yeah, you know. And I always let him get old and die, man. I mean, as much as I love Peanuts, look at Gasoline Alley, if anyone remembers, which its entire popularity came from the fact that the guy who's a teenager in the first comic strip of Gasoline Alley is a father with a kid. Ten years later, he's an old man by the time they stop making the strip. Yeah. Well, I mean, the 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 study here uh, is Cobra Kai, you know, which just uh, which yeah. just dropped and and mm -hmm. huge success. And I I love that you gave she the Cobra Kai treatment. You know, it's like they they tried to reboot the Karate Kid, you know, with uh, Will Smith's kid, and it was it was terrible. And it, yeah, and, for and, that, and, and, Swank. Well, yeah, no, but no, okay. no, the the, the the Hillary Swank thing was actually part of the Karate Kid universe. She was still being taught right. by was, Miyagi. Yeah. She was just his next I student. Tell you, I bet you she comes back in season five. I I I one hundred percent would bet on it. I, I, I oh, it's fun. It. It's so yeah. much fun, you know. Yeah. Well, 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 and 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 you know what? I mean, having I mean, I, I'm I'm the biggest Cobra Kai fanatic out there, and you know, Karate Kid was my favorite movie just since you know I could fucking see straight, and um, and I think they've done such a wonderful job with with Cobra Kai, and I think that 
the third season is actually the best season in, in my opinion yeah. because it is it is Cobra Kai works best to me when it when it is uh, when it is functioning as like a love poem to the the three original movies mm-hmm. um, and and it does that to a degree in the first two seasons uh, I think they really double and triple down on it in the third season. And and uh, and that's some of the strongest stuff, you know, where yeah. where he you know he ends up uh, um, you know back in Japan and 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 and, and, and I mean they they really I, I don't I don't I don't want to uh, I, I don't want to drop spoilers here. It also, um, yeah, because it's so good. But maybe we should do a yeah. Cobra I revisit. One. Yeah, I haven't watched it yet. So yes, stay away from me. Yeah, I haven't watched it. Everybody and their cousin tells me I must watch it. Yeah, so yeah. I have to watch it. Yeah. yeah, but 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 the idea of doing that with 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 she, you know, was uh, what does she look like fifteen years later, and what are the ramifications yeah. of of having aged fifteen years, and 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 what has happened to the world, and and yeah. uh, and, and 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 the supporting characters, and all of that stuff. I think that is, uh, you know, I think that's that's very interesting. And you know, I, w- I would go so far as to say, I mean, it's something that I tried to do with Banjax. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, Banjax is a about a. A disgraced former superhero who finds out he has uh, he has three months to live decides he's going to clean up the city uh, before he dies, um, but it's kind of told on 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 two t- you know in two timelines. I mean, there is what happened years ago that disgraced him and sort of got him out of the game, and there's what what's happening now. Him sort of storming back onto the scene, and 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 uh, and and so I'm I'm kind of trying to do it like with one book where it's like, this is how it was and this is how it is now and trying to deal with some of those similar themes. But the idea of, you know, again, you having, you had such a rich world and a rich history with this character, right? And then coming back 15 years later and dealing with that and and, and tying up loose ends and creating uh, uh, new things is just fascinating to me. I want to write a new, I want to write a new Banjax story in 15 years. Well, see, now here's the fun thing is what you could do with Banjax is what Steve, uh, what we can do with she is that, you know, this yeah. story takes place 15 years, 20 years after the last time we saw she. Yeah, yeah. You can always go back and revisit those lost years sure. and you can have, you know, the, the story leading up to him disgracing himself or what happened immediately after he disgraced himself. Yeah. If you are flashing, and so you can have a whole, you can bring Banjax back with the Lost Years or something like that, you know. But you, yeah, yeah. all you need is a good reason to tell the story and a good story. Yeah. Yeah. The 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 prime example of how not to do it is Star Trek Into Darkness, nice. where they remade The Wrath of Khan, which is yeah, a movie right. about old age <laughs> and about the mistakes of your youth coming back to haunt you and about losing your best friend who you've loved like a brother for 30 years. And they made it a movie about two guys who got out of college last year, hated each other for 80% of the previous movie and are somehow broken up when one of them died. Like everything that the first movie about is about is completely, you can't, you can't do it. The yeah. second story can't be Goddard Dameron. It has, yeah. that's the ninth story. Yeah. So they rushed right to the thing about old age and death in a movie about two 25-year-olds, and it makes no goddamn sense, and that's why it's terrible. And the funniest thing about it is they had 300 hours of Star Trek to draw from and be inspired by and yeah. go, you know what? Let's make where what, what, what happened to Gary Mitchell in this timeline? What happened to Nurse Rand in this uh, – Yeoman Rand in this timeline? And instead they went, no, let's remake the other blockbuster, forgetting entirely the context – of the story, you yes, know, I have no problem with remakes. So and, <laughs> what's that? 
I said, how could they have run out of ideas so quickly? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They just yeah. had a hit movie, and it was a really good movie. How could they? How could they have gone there? Yeah. No, you it's. Know, a, I mean, it's it also an opportunity to stand on the shoulders of giants, and you really shouldn't piss on their heads. Yeah. <laughs> well, but the, you know, the ultimate thing about all creative work and all storytelling is when you when you're when you're working in someone else's world or even in any pre-existing world or referencing some previous pre-existing work step one you open the hood and you look at the engine and you look and you go why did this work what made this work and the first thing you see when you open the hood on the wrath of khan is this is a movie about old people dealing with being old so close the hood and go, maybe I don't make this movie with my two 25 year old leads. Yeah. Maybe I, maybe I, maybe I go with something that's about youth and something that's about inexperience and learning who you are. And there are a million places to learn from that. And that's, I've had to do that with, you know, I've worked on licensed properties and yeah, the question one is always, what do people love about this? Why is it great? And you can, even with the greatest things ever made, you can go, but what does it lack? I was not a particularly giant fan of Damon Lindelof because of some of the TV work not resonating for me or seeming sloppy or lame to me. But my hat is eternally off to him because he took Watchmen, which is in its way as perfect as it could be. And he went, what's, what's the one thing Alan Moore didn't get? Well, he's an Englishman and he didn't know fuck all about America on the subject of race. Mm -hmm. So you hand me Watchmen and I'm going to take all this stuff about it that was great and that really worked and I'm going to open it with the Tulsa race massacre of 1921 because Alan Moore doesn't know a fucking thing about that and it's missing from his... He catalogs American culture beautifully and leaves out race, mm -hmm. which is amazing. And it works. It's fine. It's about Richard Nixon. It's about the 80s. It's about Reagan. It's about the Cold War. It's about a lot of things. But it's not about that at all. Mm -hmm. And the genius of going, what is this perfect gem of a thing actually need? Mm -hmm. What did it leave behind? What can I bring and, to it? You know, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm here to bring something to it. Exactly. To build upon, to build upon it, you know? Yeah. And For that's sure. always your, your responsibility is what, you know, and sometimes I wrote a Doc Savage thing. Uh, and, and it was literally, you know, it was very, they're very nice to me. Dynamite reached out and said, write a Doc Savage thing. And I said, 1930s, any, you know, what do you, do you want me to bring him into the present day? What do you want? And they were like, whatever the hell you want. What do you <laughs> want to do? I mean, all, it did have to pass muster with the Doc Savage licensors. But aside <laughs> from that, they were like, propose whatever the hell you want. And in that case, I went, you know what? Since I haven't really done a lot, I had written one one-shot with him. I said, I kind of just want to write a 1939, could have been written by Lester Dent, could have been published in 1939, classic Doc Savage adventure. I do not want to reinvent anything. I do not want to change anything. I brought it into the present day the tiniest bit by having a same-sex romance be an, a very important subplot in it which Lester Dent probably wouldn't have done. Uh, but I also don't believe that Lester Dent never met a lesbian in his life. I, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's, la I don't think that's actually possible. So that was the only modern sensibility I brought to it, was that Pat Savage was in love with Amelia Earhart. 
I thought that was funny. They're both aviators. Thought it was a good connection to make historically. But sometimes you do look at it and go, you know, I don't want to fix what's broken in this. I don't actually. Did I can avoid well with, with the licensors. What's that? Did that go over well with the licensors? Did they? Did they let let that? I, honestly, the funniest thing about that subplot is that I felt like I read, you know, what few reviews you get writing comic books for Dynamite. And what struck me as super funny is that the Doc Savage fan base is a million years old. Like I'm, I'm 55 and I'm young for a Doc Savage fan. <laughs> the fan base, it entirely flew over their heads. Right. And I don't, I didn't write it explicit. I wrote it the way a same-sex romance would have played out in 1939. They're not making out in public. Like it's, it's not that world homosexuality is literally illegal in most states in 1939. So everything's a little closeted, whatever. Um, the older fans, like I said, not one of them said even to me, well, I love the way you had this. None of them complained. Every comic book reviewer under, let's say, 35 noticed it and took it entirely in stride. I even wrote, I even read one review where I'm pretty sure the young woman writing the review did not recognize the name or face of Amelia Earhart. Oh, <laughs> wow. It was like, so Pat Savage convinces her cousin Doc to go looking for her girlfriend, Amelia, in the South Pacific. And I was like, you know, <laughs> you're not, you don't know which, you know, that, you're not, you're not impressed with who that Amelia, that particular <laughs> Amelia Earhart person is, are you? And again, in the, like, she thought, Amelia Earhart was a fictional character I created. And that, and again, there's, there's no protection for that. There's mm -hmm. only so much you can, I'll just tell a very quick side story about that, about historical accuracy. I wrote a Twilight Zone, the shadow genre mashup, which was a lot of fun. Took place in 1939. The villains were the American Nazi party, the, bo the Bund, the German American Bund, which was a real thing. 100,000 of them attended a rally in Madison Square Garden where they called, they had a huge painting of George Washington and they called yeah. him the first fascist. Literally the guy who stepped down from being president of the United States voluntarily was somehow the first fascist. But long story short, I found that in this small town in Long Island called yeah. Yafank, yeah, Yep, yeah, Pank. Yep, yeah, there Pank. was a Nazi summer camp called yeah. Camp Siegfried, and they had Nazi topiary, and they had their own little fascist uniforms that they wore and all this. After America declared war on Germany, DAs raided the place, shut it down, arrested the organizers, all that. But in 1939, it was still a thing. It was still happening. And I used them, and I wrote about them, and I uncovered pictures of them, and I sent them to Dave Acosta, and he recreated the grounds and the uniforms and everything beautifully. Every single review of the first issue referred to the fictional Yapank, New York, my incredible imagination with imagining a, an American Nazi party. And some, one, someone referred to him, said, well, I guess this is like a, a man in the high castle thing taking place in a world where there are Nazis in America. And I was like, I don't know how to, and I, to this day, I don't know how to fix that. I don't know how to put a disclaimer going, I didn't make up any of the history. Young, my friend. Listen, I have a friend who just recently, he's been working on uh, a stage musical 
about the abdication of the throne and uh, Wallace and Mrs. Simpson. And, and it, one of the big agencies gave it to someone to read who's, in who's someone who's in charge of, I won't say the agency, but is in charge of theatricals. And he got the memo back. And the memo was talking about how unbelievable it was. <laughs> and he started reading, and, and, the, and the agent who had sent it to the theatrical agent said, yeah, you should read this. They didn't really, she, she didn't really like it. Here's a thing, read through, let me know if you had a question. And my, the friend sent the memo to me. He says, do you think she thinks I made up these characters? I said, no. Oh, no, of course not. He says, well, read this one sentence again. I said, no, I think, I think she just left out a few words. I'm sure she knew. Could she really not know? Turns out she had no idea this was a true story. So I'm not a fan of the story about, about royals and one and falling in love with an American and how no one would believe it. Uh, I, I mean, where do these people come from? They're raised. They're they're under thirty. They're raised with all the information of the world at their fingertips. Just just if, you, if you're even vaguely curious, just type it in. That that was that was my feeling. It's like yeah. it would have taken you three seconds to type Yafank into a. And go, oh, that's actually a place on a map. So right. I guess you didn't make up the town. Let me Google Camp Siegfried and see if maybe that also is a real thing. All of all, all of this said, uh, I think this year has proven that sometimes reality can be so absurd. And oh, not in totally. these cases, of course, that if any one of us wrote uh, uh, about this coup attempt uh, that we saw today, uh, we would have been you know, kicked out of a uh, we would have been kicked out of any Hollywood office. Uh, in a million well, years, yeah, here, here's the thing is, uh, you know, maybe, maybe five years ago, um, my writing partner and I wrote this spec that was about, um, uh, a very charismatic, uh, man who, um, uh, who set up, uh, almost like an American Legion hall, um, uh, in Dearborn, Michigan, uh, for, for the uninitiated Dearborn has the largest Muslim population outside of the Middle East. Uh, it's near Detroit where I grew up. Um, and basically this very charismatic man who, um, who sort of, uh, got his hooks in veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and it started out as kind of this, uh, this veterans group, this brotherhood sort of thing. And he sort of, you know, puppet masters them, twists, turns them. And eventually our protagonist is, is one of these veterans who comes in, can't find a job, uh, you know, gets help from this guy, uh, you know, is, is sort of enticed to step over a line, step over a line, step over, over a line. Eventually he realizes, holy shit, I joined a hate group, right? Um, uh, we wrote this, it, it, it might've been more than five years ago, but we wrote this thing, thought it was a pretty damn good script, thought that we were kind of onto something, sensing something that, you know, the way the wind was blowing uh, in the world. Um, and we sent this script out and, and what, what, what we kept getting is guys, like this is a little over the top, this is a little too much. <laughs> Um, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, um, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't think we can make this. Uh, I don't think people would believe it now. Um, you know, because of what has happened, uh, over the course of, of the last few years, obviously this script has been dusted off, uh, and people are looking seriously at, at, at making something along these lines. The notes we are getting today is, wow, you, you guys are really underselling this. You really have to amp this up. You got to turn up the volume on this and turn up the volume on that. Um, so the way that 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 reality is perceived and historical fact is perce perceived, um, uh, it is uh, I, the ground is shifting underneath us, and I think it does almost every day. Um, now you know. Now you know why why uh, 
long ago, uh, movies and TV realized let, we just really got to slap on based on a true story on everything, because otherwise we're, we're overestimating people's intelligence a little too much. Yeah. Well, and the, you know, the, the, the thing that I always say about movies based on true stories, and I absolutely would not put uh, your, uh, your Marion Davies movie in this quality category at all, but when people set out to make a movie based on true stories, real events... And then they throw out 99% of it. Mm -hmm. And Mank is actually a perfect example of this to me. Yeah. What is the shining example of Citizen Kane that nobody follows? He's not named William Randolph Hearst. Mm -hmm. Like literally the movie that is accepted by many as one of the greatest films ever made is a biopic where they change a lot of details and they change the name. And every time someone sits down and makes a Born on the Fourth of July, where literally the only thing that really happened is Ron Kovic went to Vietnam and got injured. And that's about that's about the only true thing in this. Oh, and he spoke at the Democratic Convention. Every every event is fraudulent. It's all nonsense. Why not make a Vietnam War movie about Bob Smith who gets injured and speaks at the Democratic right. Convention? You yeah. can still pay Ron Kovic a thousand, you know, a, a, a lot of money. I don't care. But there's a certain level of fraudulence at which I'm like, just change all the names, man. It worked for Orson Welles. Well, I got, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things there. I mean, Welles in his youth thought, well, I'm making a composite so people will understand. And it was only uh, after Marion's death that he wrote the foreword to uh, the times we had where he essentially apologized. He said, in my youth, I thought people would understand this was a fusion of a couple of different millionaires, uh, guys right. in San Francisco, but the Opera House. And I figured, oh, but I didn't realize what I what a disservice I would do to Marion Davies. It's one of the reasons, with Citizen Kane being one of my favorite films of all time, if not if not what I think is the finest film of all time, that I realized, what do I have to add to it? And the more I researched Marion, the more I realized no one had really done Marion who she was. Uh, Melanie Griffith made her a kind of shrill alcoholic in RKO 281. And I just wanted to capture who I was learning, who she was. You know, that said, I think, you know, I think the challenge is, well, here's the argument. The argument is, hey, if people want a documentary, they'll watch a documentary. If people want to read a biography, they read a biography. They shouldn't look to find history in films. And that's, you know, that's really on them. But I don't believe that. I think the challenge mm -hmm. as a filmmaker is that the fact is, you know, my unofficial estimates are that, you know, 90% of the people who watch the Cat's Meow will learn everything they'll ever know about Marion Davies, Charlie Chaplin, and Little Round of for my movie. So it's up to me to make a decision personally that I think there's a moral responsibility there to kind of present that person. Um, uh, if uh, Obviously, look, once Charlie Chaplin and Marion Davies go in a cabin and the door is closed, you're, you're, you're a dramatist. There's right. no record of that. But... To keep it true to the spirit of who they were, the facts as I've researched them, and I tried to make it a point not to ever look, and I still do this on, on historical things, I never look at a fact about a person and go, yeah, no, that won't work for me. I've got to make them different, which is why I, I find it absolutely apprehensible what uh, uh, Akiva Goldsman convinced Ron Howard to do with Cinderella Man, where they needed a villain. And so they said, let's make Max Bear Senior. Yeah, poor Max Bear, man. He killed a guy, yeah, right. guy in the ring. 
So good. We'll make him this bullying boxer who said, I killed a guy in the ring and now I'm going to kill your daddy too. This is the only depiction on film probably there ever will be of Max Bear Sr., whose children still live, whose son was in the Be uh, Beverly Hillbillies. And the, the family was devastated that their father was turned into this monster. As every boxer will tell you, as every bo uh, do uh, boxing historian will tell you, boxers, there's with rare exception, probably no exceptions, never intend to kill a man in the yeah, way yeah. that it haunts them for the rest of their lives. Right. Fair Senior was haunted the rest of his life by that. And because Akiva Goldsman thinks, I need a villain, I need an antagonist, I'm shocked that Ron Howard went along with it. Well, and, and I so, used Born on the Fourth of July, but the better example of utter fraudulence is uh, Beautiful Mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally nothing in that movie happened, except there used to be a guy with that name. Uh, <laughs> Amazing. And what's... And that's actually a classic example, and this is a good, to, to nudge us back in the direction of writing a little bit, the, the greatest thing, if you read the true story of the guy, I can't remember the, the person's name from A Beautiful Mind, that true story is so amazingly batshit crazy. In the movie, they have him be thinking that he's been hired by the CIA to be a code breaker or whatever. In real life, it was something with UFOs. Like, he believed super crazy shit. Like it, he was, he was, his mania and his delusions were incredibly fascinating in the real world. And Ron Howard made it boring as hell. And he was a terrible husband and Robin Howard made him a good husband and he cheated with his male students and Ron Howard didn't think that was very interesting. I'm like, you took everything interesting about this guy. Literally the only reasons I would be interested in making his movie. And you got rid of all of that yeah. to produce this crazy people are wonderful, uh, you right. know, Rain Man 2 electric boogaloo nonsense, <laughs> uh, just because you wanted to win a goddamn Academy Award. Yeah. And that, and you know, to talk about something we have in common, uh, I used Stoker as a character in a single issue of Elvira. Uh -huh. Even in something that's a spoof, even in something that's insane, I sure told the truth about his marriage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, right. I, I still talked about it. I talked about his shitty marriage really well. Yeah. Uh, and I made Dracula, the real life lad, the Impaler shows up and I made him essentially a stand in for Oscar Wilde in their mm -hmm. real lives. <laughs> uh, and again, to me, as someone who believes heavily in research, as I know you do, to me, I can't believe that people ignore what they find in it or simply don't do it because it's a, Research is a basket marked free ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and how the hell do you not reach into it every single time? Just lazy. Get lazy. I had I had planned on having an episode with Stoker, and my it's still my favorite, my wife's favorite piece of my writing for an Elvira comic book. The title of the issue is Stoker. I hardly know her. Um, nice. But uh I didn't have any idea what I was going to write about him, except, you know, Dracula is going to show up and they'll run around and there'll be hijinks and whatever. And then I researched Stoker and I went, this is fascinating. And I have learned why I don't like vampire stories <laughs> because well, Bram Stoker is a fucking teenager incel going bad boys, get all the chicks, man. And, and like, that's a terrible underpinning for an entire genre and uh i'll write about that that's really funny his wife didn't like him i'll write about that that's really funny like there's i had nothing for that character and then i read about him and went oh there's a universe of jokes one can yeah. make about bram stoker like yeah. that's a that is fertile fields 
yeah. you know. But, but, but before I forget about it, uh, Avalone, you and I have been talking for, um, I don't know, years now uh, about maybe doing a um, uh, writing historical figures uh, panel at cons. And yeah, so, uh, you know, a year uh, down the line, <laughs> when we are all back at cons, uh, I should uh, uh, get you and uh, and Paris up on a, uh, a, a panel in front of a, a, a con crown, and we, we should make this happen. We've been talking, uh, uh, David F. Walker was the other one that uh, we almost did it with yeah. him one time. David's so, an amazing writer yeah, of yeah, figures. Yeah, maybe we'll bring David F. Walker on. I, I, I don't want to forget that. The, um, the, the thing that keeps popping to my, to my mind, uh, 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 you know, with this line of discussion is, have you guys been watching The Great? Um, on, uh, on Hulu, the what? Uh, the the great is a it, it is a it is a comedic take on oh, on, on Catherine's great story. Of it. Yeah, and it is. Um, I mean, I, I, I was shocked at how good it was. I mean, it's just it, it's just it, it's it's not my brand of thing. I never in a million years would have wanted to watch it, but my wife was uh you know my wife had heard uh, uh really promising things, and I just got sucked in. And I, I would go so far as to say it's it's one of the better things I've watched uh, uh, while in quarantine here. Um, and the um. You know, I mean, it's like they they embrace fact to the degree that they can, but it it is a kind of zany, funny, comedic take on you know what happened. Uh, uh, you know, back in Russia, all those years where things were just horrible and people were getting murdered and stabbed in the back and lit on fire um, and all that. And and um, and you know, it it's such a delicate balance. They embrace fact enough. Um, but right off the first thing you see is a big title that says the great. And then what fades in underneath it is an occasionally true story. Um, and it, it sets the table perfectly. Right. And so I think that I, I am accepting everything you guys are saying. I think a lot of it, um, a lot of it though comes with expectation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, the problem with the beautiful mind is it is being sold as a historical document to a certain degree. Right. Um, and and that's a weapon that you can use. I mean, Fargo starts out with with with, with a similar thing, like with the you know, completely the fraudulent the, claim. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. The following events that. happened, uh, uh, you know, in North Dakota in yeah. in, in, in in the eighties. Uh, the you know the for respect to the uh, uh, for the respect to the dead, uh, the names have been changed. Everything else has been told exactly how it happens, and it just sets a tone. And you're like, oh my god. And then again, it's this completely made up fit, right? But you are taking it so seriously, you know, because if you watch that movie without that, that, that warning in the beginning, you, you take it completely differently than, yeah. you know, if you set the table that way. And so it is all about managing expectation. I think an audience uh, and, and then snobs like us will forgive a shit ton if you start out with an right. occasionally, you know, well, an occasionally that's the disclaimer at the beginning of Butch and Sundance, isn't it? Not that it matters, but a lot of what follows is true, or most of what follows is true. Like it doesn't claim all of it. He just says, "Not that it matters," because yeah, we're not yeah, here. Yeah. We're not here really to learn about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah, and I'm I, and I'm searching for a reasonable example now, but I'm absolutely certain I've seen more than one movie where it's like you know where it starts out with something along the lines of "What you're about to see has nothing to do with reality," you know. Right. Um, uh, um, so, so there's that, I mean, it's like, you know, and then, and then it's all about, it's all about the way, it's all about the tone of the film and the swagger of the film. Because when I was growing up, uh, the Young Guns movies were, were, were some of my favorite movies. And, um, and, and, you know, those movies, 
those movies had very little to do with, with with actual effect. I mean, Billy the Kid was treated like a hero in those, you know, especially yeah, in the second like one. So most movie yeah. reference have no react, no, no grad. No, they're actually not based on anything that ever really happened. We've we've created the myth of the American Western genre, and yeah. the, and then we we we've had westerns based on westerns. When you get to Sergio Leone, yeah. Yeah. and then and then, yeah. and then double back because then. Then Americans started making westerns based on Sergio, inspired by what Sergio yeah. Leone was doing. Yeah. So yeah. you know, and then if you go back to the, yeah. the, the 30s, 40s, before all of the widescreen yeah. westerns, they're just making crap up and and how people dressed. <laughs> so none of we we we, we created yeah. the whole chapter of American history that people think happened well, that is so far removed from what actually happened. Oh yeah, yeah, and 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 and, and I mean, what I was going to say about Young Guns is like it is. Uh, it is treated like Hollywood swaggery Hollywood fare. It is almost like a uh, it's almost like a graduated brat pack movie, and right. like oh, and, totally. and, 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 and you know that that's what you're getting, and yeah. so you, and so you forgive it. It is not the it is not well, the Ron Howard. You should be taking this 100 percent seriously. Right, this they're leaning into it. Stuff. They're leading leading yeah. into the 1991 hairstyles, and yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. But here's a sheer irony for you, and again, this kind of leans back towards the positives of popular culture and entertainment tombstone is a more accurate depiction of the life of wyatt earp than lawrence kasdan's wyatt earp mm -hmm. which has sort of a fraudulently heroic view like he's heroic in tombstone but it's such a cartoon of heroism and he's such a goon in so many ways it's a little closer to reality than the mythic iconic figure that Larry Kasdan builds up this guy who belongs on Mount Rushmore. George Pan Cosmetos' version of him was a little more of a questionable yeah. fellow, and that's way more accurate to the history. The thing about the fraudulent version of the Old West, and again, this is a this occurred to me years ago. We have this idea that gunfights happened all the time, <laughs> that people were constantly shooting each other down in the streets of Western towns. I started to think about the fact that we all know the gunfight at the OK Corral. It's a historical event. We make a big deal about it. There are literally 300,000 movies about it. You know what that tells me? There weren't a lot of gunfights in the Old West. There were like maybe no gunfights in the Old West. There were like maybe three gunfights in the Old West. And one of them involved a bunch of guys who were sort of famous. So we know all about that one. But the fact that there's no other... Showdown at Apache Wells, not a real thing. Didn't right. happen. Like there's, it's just one of those things. If you have, if every World War II movie was about the Battle of the Bulge, you would start to maybe think that was the only battle in World War II, and you might be right if that were the case. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's a, it's a for something that's been so exhaustively exhumed. Somehow, no writer has found another historical gunfight that they felt would make an acceptable movie mm -hmm. Probably because mostly it's two guys stumbling out of a bar and one guy shooting another guy and there's no story there's no content yeah. it's just and, uh, yeah. killing each other yeah, yeah. like any couple of drunks killing each other in the present day well exactly and, and the weapons weren't accurate and uh yeah. and, and, and you know it's a uh, um yeah. I, always, I mean it's every yeah. time i see a movie where someone does a trick shot with a peacemaker yeah. called 45 revolver i think about what Mark Twain in Roughing It writes about the peacemaker, and he says literally the only safe place when someone draws a peacemaker is behind them. Yeah. Because you yeah. have no idea where the bullet might actually yeah. end up, and it will never end up where the guy actually pointed it. And that's why yeah, that's going to leave a hole as big. Yeah. That 45 long colt is a, is a yeah. 
terrible route. You know, yeah. it's funny, you, you know, um, this makes me think about, you know, what do we write about our history? What don't we write about our history? And one of the, one of the fascinating things that I read uh, is that after the uh, pandemic of the, the, the influenza of 1918, for the most part, literature, theater, movies, didn't write about it. No yep. one wrote. We we grew up. I, I I'd like to speak to you guys. I didn't, I wasn't taught about it in in in, in yeah, my no. public school education. It never brought up to me. I only yeah. I mean I kind of it was always on the periphery. I kind of knew it happened. Never was ever a dinner conversation. Never a part. Never a, a lecture. I kind of knew it happened. So when people started talking about it now, but apparently th there was a wonderful article. I forget where. They actually think the reason why no writer playwright a novelist uh, 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 took it on and wrote something about that, inspired by that period, is that everyone ultimately was embarrassed. Mm. They were embarrassed by their behaviors, they were embarrassed by what it brought out on, on themselves, because everything going on now, the deniers, the this, the that, all the falling, it, it all happened then. Yeah. So we kind of, I kind of wish someone had created the great Upton Sinclair, you know, some sort of great novel that everyone had read in school about the pandemic of 1980. Every once in a while, you'll read something where a character who died, you know, oh, his mother died in 18. Mr. Gower, they have the influenza over there, don't they? Yeah. And, <laughs> and we, we, it's, it's like mentioning that someone died in World War One. It is, right. it is taken, you know, he died in 18 of the flu. He died at Ardennes. Like, it's just, we're just going to pass it over. But yeah, no one wrote, mm -hmm. you know, and all of those writers. It was a huge chapter in all world history, in American nobody knew, history. Nobody knew how to, and I've already written something about COVID-19, so <laughs> we'll, see how, we'll see how that goes. But, uh, but yeah, it is how we choose our subjects. Mm -hmm. I mean, and not to get into a thing that's entirely about history, but look at the horrific deformation of American understanding of our own history accomplished by a single book and a single movie, and that would be Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. Yep. That thing is a crime against humanity to a certain degree, to the degree to which people believe it's an accurate representation of American history. Mm -hmm. and think that's what it all was and that's how it all went down. And I absolutely, I feel a responsibility as a writer always to never do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> never make the bad guys the good guys. Never, never, never blind people to the reality of, what it really was, mm -hmm. you know, and, yeah. and, 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 and again, as writers, I think the, to the degree that it's a restriction, that restriction is a joy because mm -hmm. it's like, to me, it's a challenge. It's here's the jigsaw puzzle. Here are the pieces. They got to fit together and there are rules. And sometimes you have to break those rules when it's important to you, when you, you know, sometimes, sometimes the truth of what you're getting at is more important than what year an album came out or were they saying X expression in 1919 or did people start saying it in 1922? Like mm -hmm. there are, there are fine lines with that, but ultimately uh, there's a, it's a great line I heard once about acting and I think it applies to everything we do. Uh, the difference between true and real. Someone said, there's not a moment of realism in the entire career of Jimmy Cagney, but it's all true. Mm -hmm. How he portrayed it, how he acted, 
No human being talks like that. No human mm -hmm. being acts like that. No human being walks like that. But there's a truth about humanity in all of it. Mm -hmm. And as Absolutely. long as you get there, the rest is actually secondary. Mm -hmm. You know, I, yeah, I agree. As Absolutely. long as you're telling the truth. All that to said, we've we've gone down a, a a very different path than we were supposed to start out. <laughs> so I do want to I want to talk about um, what inspired uh, she uh, initially. Like, what was the what was the inciting thing? What was the thing that made you want to write about her? You know, uh, believe it or not, I, I you know, growing up, I always loved you know Kurosawa samurai films. I, I think I got into that in high school, and then especially college is really just gripped me. Um, and, uh, the Japanese film, uh, Kobayashi's, uh, um, uh, Quidon that came out in 66, sure. I think the year I was born. And I just loved it. And then when I went to school, you know, going to, to, to FIT in the city, one of my classes with, you know, art history class, and we learned about Japanese woodblock prints. And that really just blew my mind. I just loved the whole aesthetic of it. And then I just started to get really get into Japanese culture. And I came up with this character, and it was originally a male character. And then uh, our a mutual friend, it was a samurai story, really. And then our friend Barry Orkin, who we also met, who the, the artist of Stoker and Wells, and uh, he's done a lot of she work, designs all our logos, things like that. Uh, Barry had mentioned the Sohai warriors, which were the warrior monks of medieval Japan. Mm -hmm. And I just got into to studying them and, and their history. And uh, it just... It, from, it was really all reference. Going back with reference, it's all reference. And I wanted once they abolished the Sohai warriors, the samurai abolished the Sohai, and then the Sohai were abolished by the, the Meiji Restoration in the 18, 1868 or whatever it was. And uh, I just love that this shadow war then carried over uh, mm -hmm. between these warring sects that today, uh, you know, is no longer, you know, bat you know fought on battlefields. My hat's all crooked. Uh, on battlefields, you know, well, on the plains of in, in in the plains of the shadow of Mount Fuji, but now these battles take place in the arts and in the boardroom, and in you know and entertainment and business, all this and and have the shadow war and Anna's basically a uh, a soldier drafted into this war. And I remember when I went, I I, I changed the character because it just fit being a female character uh, because of uh, the, the 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 historical repression of of women. In, in Japan, um, and granted, this is a society that takes everything, takes making, serving tea to an art form and the way they eat and everything like that, but they are one of the most violent societies history has ever known. And um, I thought, wow, what, a, what an interesting dichotomy. And, and I just, the more re research I did, and that's basically how I came up with the character, and I'm like, it fits as a, as a female. It really fits as a female lead. And granted, this time, I think Wonder Woman was the only comic, Marvel or DC comic, that had its own title. That was a female-driven lead, you know, that wasn't a team book or something. I think wow. She-Hulk might have been around. She-Hulk might have been canceled by then. Yeah, She-Hulk um, goes. Yeah, so I was like, you know, I'm like, and I was told by people, you know, by, by other people, other publishers that I went to to, to publish because I didn't know how to publish a book. And I was told, you know, you know, by one of them, uh, who's since become a great friend of mine, he's like, yeah, girl books don't sell. Comics mm -hmm. with girl with female leads don't sell. And, and we're going to prove it know, by never making any. So they definitely won't sell. Right. And But that was the story. That's what was best for the story. And I love how it's carried over to, to now of how she has she she has progressed with time, Adam. Yeah. And she's well, no longer. Hold on, but, let's, let's, hold on, Billy. But I mean, let's give it. I'd like to really hone in on this. I mean, 
thanks to, I mean, Witchblade was in, in crossovers to introduce in She. I mean, there's no Tomb Raider if She didn't wasn't a success. You yeah. know, so there, there's a lot. I was that, told that, that by the, 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 the it would be that that kind of opened the doors that said it, this is commercially viable. You know, and so a lot of credit to you for doing that, and a lot of uh, a lot of feminists should thank you, Billy Tucci. <laughs> well, you know, I love the fact that we we went into this long digression about historical reference uh, research without me knowing that was the background because I think the difference between the the great work and the terrible work is that a lot of people would have stopped at well I saw Quite On hmm. and I liked it so I just uh, did something like that. Yeah. The fact that Quaidon led you down the rabbit hole of research and you decided to write something. There's a thing that I've been saying about The Mandalorian, and I think it, it it's related in some ways to the research idea, which is a lot of people, when they make Star Wars or even knockoff Star Wars, they're inspired by Star Wars. The genius of the Mandalorian is that whether it's Filoni or, or Favreau or whoever, it's inspired by the things that inspired Star Wars. Yes. If yep. you're making Star Wars, imitate Kurosawa, not yep. Lucas. Yep. Imitate Leone. Imitate John Ford, because that's what the guy who made Star Wars was doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lucas wasn't imitating George Lucas until he made The Phantom Menace, and then he was imitating him very badly. <laughs> but... <laughs> but that, but and that's where things go wrong. Is you start imitating the thing that you you start imitating yourself. But Are you saying there's something wrong with Star Crash or Battle Beyond the Stars? I love. We watched the first five minutes of Star Crash the other day, and it was <laughs> jaw, I my jaw dropped. I, <laughs> I I absolutely couldn't believe it. But, well, unfortunately, you know, it's is well uh, not unfortunately, but you know I become obsessed with it. You know I, I should have been a reference librarian. I think. Um, because I do become obsessed with reference and, and, uh, and the historical and, and, you know, you can love historical fiction, but you called it. I mean, so I love the lone wolf and cub elements of the Mandalorian. Yeah, exactly. And, so, and you're like, yes, you, you know, and, 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 and also, and this is again, part of the like, you know, frustrated history teacher, frustrated reference librarian thing. I'm writing a, a completely ridiculous comic at the moment. Um, it's an L it's another Elvira spinoff. And, the villain, to the degree that he can be a villain, is uh, an ancient Egyptian god. And I had, I plotted it very loosely from the beginning. I'm on issue three, and I, as a setting, I wanted them to go to Cairo. Well, I don't know a fucking thing about Cairo. <laughs> uh, and I don't really know enough about what I have discovered in the last week about Egyptian mythology and pyramids and funeral rites, and there's a pyramid field at Abu Sir. Fascinating. I like everybody knows Kheop, Cheops and Giza, uh, Giza and all that. There's a twenty, a five thousand year old, well, forty five hundred year old pyramid field in South Cairo. I've never seen it in movie. I knew nothing about it. It is amazing. And what's what I always discover? There's a magic to research. When I started, I did just enough research to make Amun-Ra the villain. And that's even complicated because Amun, there's Amun and then there's Ra. And at some point in the 5th Dynasty, about 2500 BCE, they combine into one dude. So I'm looking for a location for this final showdown. I go, let's go do, let's not do Giza. Let's do 
Abu Sir. That looks more interesting. And they're called the Lost Pyramids because nobody ever goes down there. And uh, was looking at this location, and I'm looking at it on Google Maps, and I see, you know, Lost Temple of Ra. And I'm like, there's a Lost Temple of Ra at Abu Sir. There's a Sun Temple. And I started doing research, and it's like literally this pharaoh built a secret temple that no one's literally been able to find. That's another great, like, it's a story element. Right. There's a temple that he supposedly built to Ra and the desert ate it. And there's a pile of rocks there and no one knows, did he maybe never finish it, but he wrote in his diary that he finished it. And that's the only reason we think maybe he ever finished it or did it get destroyed by a rival or whatever. And I of course made there be a secret underground passage to the actual temple lost temple of Ra. Yes. But I didn't have lost temple of Ra on my bingo card at all. I had nothing planned. And then I spent a day looking at maps of Cairo and temple and, and, you know, Googling Abu Sir and, uh, Usharef the Pharaoh. And now I know all this shit about, you know, the fifth dynasty of Egypt that I didn't know last week. And I'm pretty happy about that. Oh, yeah. you know? when, I teach, when I teach writing, I always tell them if you're working, you know, a lot of young writers, they come in with these huge ideas and or characters who are psychiatrists or characters who are lawyers or cops. And I just let them know that it doesn't matter how long you're in the business. Every new script is a whole bunch of new research uh, if you're going to get it right. Uh, um, uh, and if the prospect of re the research makes you go... I say you probably shouldn't be working on that script because the prospect of the research should make you lean in with it with excitement, and it's your it's your it's your ingredient box. It's it's like instead of staring at white screen, you actually have stuff to play with. It should excite yeah. you. If it doesn't, there's probably not a script you should be working on or or a book and, you should be working on. And again, you you always discover amazing stuff you didn't always. know about. I was oh, writing yeah. a Betty Page thing, and I had her. <laughs> escaping London in a helicopter with Queen Elizabeth II being chased by a UFO. Complicated <laughs> setup to get there. I needed them to crash someplace epic and interesting for the final showdown. Stone Edge is like two and a half hours away. I was like, I can't have that helicopter UFO chase last more than a few minutes because, man, you, that, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> like, yeah. One laser blast, the helicopter's going down. About a half hour outside of London, and I'm getting, like, let's say this is a very fast helicopter. Uh, there's a series of Roman ruins that are amazing, that aren't Stonehenge, which everyone's seen a thousand times. I really wanted to use Stonehenge. Stonehenge is iconic. But these other ruins, I can't remember the name of them off the top of my head, were amazing. And no one's ever drawn them. They've yeah. never been in a comic book. They've never been in a movie. Amazingly, no one's used it as a location for a British harm. There, there's probably some Hammer film I've never seen right. where Peter Cushing yeah. and and Chris really chase themselves around this Roman burial mound for a half hour, but I haven't seen it. And again, the fact that I, I went, no, I'm not going to write something where Stonehenge is five minutes away from the London Bridge by helicopter. Not yeah. going to, I won't do it. <laughs> I will. I refuse. And I just, I accept, I, I trusted in reality that there was an interesting location within a half hour of London. There mm -hmm. had to be some cool place and I would, went after it and I found it and that's, and to me, research, that always happens. Yeah. I have yeah. never needed a cool thing. 
gone into Google looking for it and gone, oh, I guess there isn't anything like that. There isn't anything yeah. cool a half hour outside of London that no one's ever seen. Well, yeah, but when I, I was working on, on Cat's Meow, there was I wrote it as first script out of NYU. So it, it had a long history before it finally got made. But um, uh, it came out in 2002. It, you know, again, researching it, internet wasn't quite there yet. So I had written a kind of, it opens and closes at a funeral. And I'd written the funeral, you know, uh, a little too lazy. Just, you know, I just set the stuff, oh, people, appuse, priest, closes a book. Mm -hmm. And then I came across a, a New York Times uh, microfiche about 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 uh, Tom Ince's uh, funeral. And I had only seen L.A. papers, but the New York Times one, or maybe the other way around, I'd seen New York Times, hadn't seen L.A. Times. And it said that a Hawaiian string... Uh, a Hawaiian string uh, band was playing Aloha at his funeral. I was like, oh, my God. Right. And, and I, it's in the script. It's in the movie. The cut to it always gets a little kind of weird laugh. Yeah. And I, I th I thank God for the research. And, I saw and it, it never would have occurred to you to make, yeah. up, Hawaii, make up Hawaiian yeah. slack key guitar playing Aloha at a funeral. <laughs> yeah. Not at all. 1920, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. No, yeah, no, true. It's just an early lesson to just keep digging. You're going to find yeah. amazing stuff. Well, that's if I can, I'm sorry, go ahead, Billy. No, uh, I, I, yeah, I was just going to say, if I can, if I can, yes, and you guys, I would just, I, I, I would, I would even say, take it further, put your hands on it, uh, uh, as as much as humanly possible. It's something that I learned in my in my screenwriting career. I mean, certainly, like. Um, you know, if you're writing about a place, I mean, you, you can't fly to Egypt, uh, Avalone, uh, amid a pandemic and, and, and look at these lost pyramids, but you know, I mean, if, if, if you're Google writing about satellite view, though, uh, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, you know, but if you're writing about the Griffith, you know, observatory and you drive up there and, and oh, suddenly, suddenly it comes to life. I mean, it's, um, what it, you know, in my screen learning career, um, we've really pushed for, for this sort of thing. Um, my writing partner and I, we, we kind of broke with a, um, uh, we wrote the script called the ghost and the wolf, uh, which made the blacklist and kind of broke us as a team. Um, and, uh, and it was about Russian and Armenian, uh, gangsters. And like, you know, you can, I mean, we've seen we've seen those in movies right um and they're very stereotypical they go one way i mean you can read about them most people if they're going to sit down and write mobsters they're going to watch old mobster movies and then just write those right and 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 that wouldn't have been worth our time it never would have ended up on the blacklist it never would have broke us as writers we um we found ways to actually insert ourselves into this world the you know it, it was a los angeles based story Wow. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and, and we found people to introduce us to, I mean, we spent, uh, you know, we spent an entire weekend, uh, uh, at an Armenian contraband house. They were selling, uh, uh, uh cigarettes with, uh, with fake, uh, tax stamps and, uh, you to my landlord. Yeah, in vodka, uh, we you know we we ran with our, uh, our our median bookies. We ran with, I mean, it was you know it was it was it was weeks of this stuff, and sometimes yeah, you know, sometimes it was just like, hey, uh, uh, you know, we we just we just got a call from Garvey's. He wants to introduce you to this other guy who's done this, and it's like absolutely. And it's like, and, 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 you know, and we hung out in the coffee shops with them and then in the, you know, the bar they set up in the back of a carpet store and, uh, and, 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 and we watched how they, they hide the contraband from, uh, you know, from the people on the street and all of these things and all of it, every single little detail, the way people talk, the way people, you know, the way people, uh, just sort of carried themselves, the way they walk, the, the weird clothes they wore, it all ended up in the script. And, um, and, and that was you know, that was the response we got from Hollywood was like, man, I, I felt like, you know, I felt like I could, 
I could put a white glove on it. I could just feel the dust well, there, on the, uh, there's, uh, something you know, that uh, I, there's something that I say about this a lot, which is the audience might know nothing about your subject. Yeah. But the truth has a way of seeming true. Yeah. Uh, and the reality has a way of seeming real. I can be a little bit uh, precise is the nicest way to use it about historical details. But, um, you know, things have mythic resonance and feel right. a certain way. Mm. Down to the small, in my Doc Savage thing, I had Doc cap on his plane and he gets attacked by another plane. And I wanted Doc's plane to have a machine gun emplacement on it. And the artist said, you know, what machine guns? Uh, and he initially suggested uh, Browning 50 calibers, which existed at the time and were popular. And I said, those existed, but the thing that says the interwar period between World War I and World War II is the Lewis gun with the circular clip on the top. Mm. It's in For Whom the Bell Tolls. Like it's in... You see it in art as the 1930s giant heavy machine gun. No one reading that comic went, oh, a Lewis gun. But if they'd ever seen a movie set in the 1930s in which someone had a heavy machine gun, they went, oh, yeah, that's that thing. Well, yeah. I mean, as an example, Raiders of the Lost Ark takes place in 1936. All the Nazis are carrying machine guns that won't be invested, invented for two years. <laughs> but what I get is if they weren't carrying Schmeisers, the audience would take a half point off of how much they identified them as Nazis. Right. People who grow up, I, I, who grow I, up I, watching World War II movies expect their Nazis to be carrying Schmeisers, even if they have no idea what that word is. They've never heard of an MP38 versus an MP40 versus an MP28. They have no idea of any of that technology, but they see the costume and the gun. I mean, they're wearing this insignia of the Africa Corps, which won't exist for five years. Yeah, yeah. But... Nazis in Africa have to look like that, even in 1936. It's not accurate, but it's true. And well, it, it creates the mythic resonance in the audience is the point I was getting to. I, I have an interesting story that in Miss Fury Joy Division, which I'm doing with Dynamite now, um, is that uh, Marla gets in the back of a, uh, I mean, a, a General Marshall, uh, who is uh, kidnapped. It's not a big secret. He gets kidnapped. Um, and she has to save him. And, and they, uh, they're in a giant dirigible, actually a giant, uh, the USS Theodore Roosevelt, which was supposed to be our giant flying aircraft carrier. Um, and they're in a, a Grumman, um, uh, TBF Grumman, you know, uh, Avenger. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the, you know, Marla Drake can fly a plane and she's, she's flown plane. She's Miss Fury. And right. the general gets in the back in the ball turret and he's got the, the machine gun and it's a 30 caliber Browning, 30 caliber machine gun. Funny thing is, is that when 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 Maria Laura Sanabo, the artist, drew it, she drew it with a Lewis gun. I'm like, no, no, no. Here's all the reference. So this is the type of gun. I said we are yeah. literally the only two writers to have yeah, this issue yeah. with Dynamite Comics. By gave the way. Him a, a Lewis gun. It's kind of funny. If you want to show, I could show you the the image. Oh, I totally uh, you know, the way it was. Great before. artist, by the way. Funny. And I'm like, no, I no. It's like, I oh, it was a machine gun. Like, no, there's all different types. So that's that's funny. I yeah, had one thirty funny. caliber machine gun in the back, and it was a thirty. Yeah. So. No, I do. I, I do this thing, uh, which most of my artists really appreciate. Every project, I open a Pinterest page, and I every prop, every location, I generally tend to cast them with actors 
And the thing is, it's it's like don't draw Eddie G. Robinson, but it's a short, heavy set, square guy with thinning hair, smoking. Like I'm not asking for uh, I'm not asking for for likenesses most of the time. I'm just saying Doc Savage is kind of Gary Cooper who's been to the gym. Mm-hmm. Monk is kind of Ernest Borgnine. Mm-hmm. You know, Rennie is kind of Robert Ryan. And mm-hmm. those things can flow. The funniest one is the in the the princess uh, and the print and the pinup, which is set in '52, and it's uh, Betty Page meeting young Princess Elizabeth right between her becoming the queen and her coronation. And because of the reference material available, Julius Oda is an amazing artist. But in any given panel, she's either Elizabeth Windsor or she's Claire Foy. <laughs> because of the first two seasons of the crown like nice. i'm like wow queen elizabeth got really pretty in this close-up <laughs> and she's making a facial expression i have seen on claire foy many many times and then two panels later she'll be like you know looking grimly at betty page i'll be like and elizabeth the second is back yeah <laughs> nice and now we're drawing a historically accurate representation of elizabeth right. i i want to be clear that over the course of the comic it feels consistent it looks like it's just a different inf- difference in facial expression, but I can super tell when he's looking at a picture of 25-year-old Elizabeth and when yeah. he's looking at a picture of Claire Foy wearing those clothes. That's great. Nice. And it's, great. It's, uh, it's fun stuff. I also had a James Bond pastiche in that character named Tom Byrne, and, he abs- and I said, shamelessly draw Sean Connery. I want to embarrass Dynamite with their James Bond comics. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm auditioning to write those James Bond comics and give me, give me 30-year-old Sean Connery on every page. That's what there I want. And he did a great uh, job. He did a great job. Dynamite's doing James Bond, or have they? Did I miss it? They've yeah. had it for years. Yeah. yeah. They've had it since I'm shortly after I started with them. Mm-hmm. They do they, 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 they do one they do one graphic novel adaptation per year. Is that the case? Is no, that, no, really no. Good? That's they they have they have running series. Yeah. Warren Ellis wrote the first one, or Garth. Sure. I don't remember. Yeah. I always Ellis and Innes always confound me. Uh, I think it might have been Garth because they love Garth over at Dynamite. Um, yeah. And they've done like they've done an M miniseries, they've done a Felix Leiter miniseries, they've done a Money Penny miniseries. They're also doing book adaptations of the novels. Yeah, that's what I mean. Uh, yeah. That are straight adaptations of the novels. And I okay. wanted to do them until I read them. Um, I'm sure it's an Eon Productions thing. There, there's nothing for a writer to do on those books. Mm-hmm. They are transliterations of the novels. There's yeah, no. You are not allowed, like all of the, there's, what surprised me, like I thought they would be comic books and they're 80% of Fleming's novel is presented in caption boxes. Yeah, well. There's very little allowing the panel. You know, I I pick up that he's in a casino here. I I don't Mm -hmm. need, and I, to a degree I get it because some of Fleming's writing, not all of it, but some of it is very good. And sure, you're adapting in Fleming. Let's hear his voice. Let's hear the words. I get it. Um, But some of it is absolutely pedestrian. And I go, I can see that James Bond is crossing a street here. I don't need the Ian Fleming text about James Bond crossing a street. Right. Maybe they will loosen up over time. 
The most heartbreaking thing is they are doing one of those a year. And the only one I really want to do is the, you know, 12th novel. So like sometime around 2030, I can reach out to Joe Ryband and say, so about the, you only live twice graphic novel. (laughs) I would like to do that adaptation, (laughs) but until we get to, you only live twice, my, my interest is limited. I wanted to do Moonraker because I thought there was, that's a, there's no movie version of that book. Yeah. The, the book bears zero resemblance to the movie, uh, which is also true of You Only Live Twice in a lot of levels. So I was like, I can I do that? But then I read what, <laughs> I read the adaptation and I was like, this isn't really an adaptation. This is, yeah. you know, someone cut this. Is it because the estate down. is so heavily involved? What's that? Is it because the estate is so heavily involved? Yeah. Yeah. I've been very lucky at, at Dynamite with creative freedom and, I'm Cassandra Peterson loves my Elvira stuff and literally suggests a maximum of two new jokes per issue, which is wonderful. The Betty page people actually sent them a letter saying, Hey, you know, you don't have to worry about us signing off on David's stuff. We'll just accept it. And, you know, like don't slow publication waiting for us to read these scripts and get back to you because we Mm -hmm. might not. So, but the only time I ever got pushback on anything was a Doc Savage, the first Doc Savage thing I wrote was about an experiment that goes wrong. And the owners were like, Doc Savage doesn't have experiments that go, go wrong. <laughs> and, but it was, ne- it was entirely necessary for the story that the experiment go wrong. So I wrote Joe and said, I'm gonna write an opening one page speech by Doc where he says, it's very likely that this experiment could go wrong but the subject is so important, I must shoulder this risk. <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna make it that Doc is pretty sure it could go bad. Because so, Doc Savage does not get surprised by science. Right, it goes, it goes as bad as expected. Right, <laughs> and they were like, oh, this is great. I'm like, okay, good. That's how you get around Doc Savage yeah. making mistakes is you have him go, this could be a mistake, <clears throat> and then they'll be fine with it. But anyway. Uh, all right. Well, we are. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're in an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, good. Uh, good discussion. Uh, um, we are. We generally close the show. We'll go uh, around the wheel here. Uh, we'll start out with uh, Billy and uh, remind us who you are. Uh, let us know where to find you. And um, uh, you said uh, the latest version of She is uh, available somewhere. So uh, let us know uh, how we can find it. Yes, uh, you guys can find me on Twitter, on Instagram, at Billy Tucci. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, right now, She Haikyo is currently on both streaming, is both um, available on Kickstarter and Indiegogo. Um, also, Miss Fury, the Joy Division through Dynamite is available on Indiegogo. And um, just if you guys would support it, if you just go to Kickstarter or Indiegogo or just go to any of my, my Facebook, my Instagram, my Twitter, just look up Billy Tucci, you'll see it, and we'll have links to it, and and uh, you see the, the the new book by Stephen Peros and myself. Yes, um, and I um, uh, I'm uh, uh, on Twitter Stephen G Peros. I'm on Facebook. Um, uh, as Billy said, which I did not know, my um, my book Stoker and Wells came out in 2019 thanks to Kickstarter uh, campaign. I think whatever around 35,000. Then it's been on Amazon. It's on Comicsology. Uh, and Billy said, "Why don't you go on Indiegogo?" I said, "But the book's done." He said, there's a whole bunch of people who only shop on Indiegogo. And so I lowered the price a little bit. I put the book on. I put, I, I put, on, I put on Stoker and Wells mugs. 
Stoker and Wells uh, bookmarks. I put it up on, on uh, and ready to ship. I said the book's ready to ship. And uh, and we made three grand already on Indiegogo. So we're on there. We have an Indiegogo store on. Just look up Stoker and Wells. We're not only selling the book, but also only 16 copies left of Billy Tucci's um, uh, variant cover. We're not printing nice. any more. Um, so that's there. You can get the book there. And then obviously I'm, I'm with this guy uh, working on She and very excited to uh, to get She Haikyo out. Yeah. Nice. There you go. Nice. There you go. It's going to press at the end of this month. Rock and roll. There he is. Heck yeah. Uh, I have the benefit of an unusual uh, last name, so I can be easily Googled. Mm -hmm. uh, my website is davidabalonefreelance.com because go Gaddy are terrible people. Don't use GoDaddy. They took David Avalone from me and wanted to sell it for me for a lot of money. Oh, those um, Yeah, they, they, I searched for davidavalone.com a few years before I had a website, and they snatched it up so that when I came oh. back, like, would you like to buy it? so annoying. Yeah. Thousands of dollars. When I moved to Hollywood, my, my business card literally just said David Avalone Freelance, and I kept that for years. So I'm like, it's a perfectly good name for a website. Anyway. Oh, I've got, I'll have some new comics coming out in the new year. None of it can really be uh, officially announced yet. Um, I've got the Drawing Blood thing that I do with Kevin Eastman. Uh, second volume of that should be coming out soon. First volume got kicked down the road because of COVID. Um, it's available digitally from Kevin's site, but we'll have it out to real people uh, in paper at some point down the road. Um, and yeah, everything else I'm working on is vaguely uh, top secret and NDA involved for the moment. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and again, uh, I highly recommend Cat's Meow, if only because Mank gave you a headache. <laughs> Thank you. It's actually, you can watch it on, uh, it, you, can get, you can watch it through Amazon on, they call it IMDb Movies or something. You can watch it for free. I think there's a couple of, some commercials, I think on YouTube also has IMDb Movies. Lionsgate titles tend to come on and off Netflix, on and off Amazon. Yeah. They, they don't just stay for a while. But it is uh, viewable for, for free via IMDb Movies, which you can get up on your big screen TV through Amazon, I think. Nice. Yeah, Steve, is it is it too late to add a, uh, a pull quote to the poster? Uh, highly recommended, if only because Mank gave you a headache. <laughs> <laughs> if Mank made you nauseous, <laughs> David Avalone, four stars. I am, uh, I am as always, Ryland Grant, R-Y. Uh, I, I can be found um, uh, online at Ryland Grant uh, on all forms of social media. I was about to spell it R-Y-L-E-N-D-G-R-A-N-T. I always spell it because it's not a real name. My parents drunkenly arranged letters and saddled me with it. Um, and so now you have to solve that puzzle. Um, my uh, uh, my four-time uh, Ringo-nominated uh, uh, series Banjax can be found in fine comic shops everywhere and uh, via Amazon and Comixology and all that noise. Uh, the Ringo award-winning Aberrants, uh, same difference, comic shops, Amazon, Comixology. Uh, my uh, latest books, uh, the, um, uh, the thriller set in the world of Astral Projection, The Jump, and the Fargo-esque crime drama, uh, The Peacekeepers, which I don't have a visual aid for, uh, those um, are still available via uh, Backerkit. Um, if you go to the jump, one word, .backerkit.com, you can pick up all kinds of cool stuff there. Um, the Jump, The Peacekeepers, uh, original art, the whole nine yards, and then I have all of these uh, cool, uh, uh, very limited con variants from 
Banjax and Aberrant, and I have a ton of signed stuff uh, now that I can't do cons. If you want a signed book from me, uh, that's the best place to get it, the jump.backerkit.com. Um, other than that, I guess like Avalonia, I'm uh, extremely busy and wildly interesting and have stuff coming up. I can't talk about it. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I will have a uh, I, I I will have a movie uh, uh, later this year uh, uh, dropping State of Consciousness with uh, Emil Hirsch, um, but I don't know when COVID is going to allow us to uh, to um, to get it in a theater. So uh, we will find out soon, and I will update you here. But look out for that shit, uh, guys. Thanks so much for coming on. It was a, a a great discussion. I feel like we could go for another three hours here, but uh, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, when the we'll, uh, up, we'll have to have that. We'll have to have. Uh... Uh, a, a soiree, mm -hmm. agreed. Charge and, and scotch, if uh, you know. Absolutely, agreed. Can't wait to do it. All right, guys, uh, take it easy. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Thank, Thank you for having us. See you next week, Steve. I don't mean to speak for you, Steve. Thank you for having me, <laughs> Steve. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on The Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.